Welcome, listeners, to the 12th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report, a podcast about paper legacy. My name is Victor Bernhards. With me today are co-hosts and powerful wizards Robin Svensson and Christopher Wikström. As always, warmest welcome to you, dear listeners. Hello, good to be back. Hello, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Stockholm Legacy Report can be found every week on the Top Tech app. In today's episode, we will report on Paper Legacy we played since last week's episode. In addition to that, we will have a discussion about what we think of spoilers in general, as well as if we have any particular hopes for the current spoiler season set in Estrad Midnight Hunt. Finally, the Basic Land Connoisseur panel will convene to talk about Mono Red Painter. So, without further ado, Robin, how was your Paper Legacy week? I had a great paper legacy week uh, I've been doing a little bit of playing and a little bit of uh, reorganizing my collection and uh, selling off some old school cards that I don't want anymore so to start off me and Christopher did play a couple of games quite uh, many games actually even though it didn't, t- didn't take so long time <laughs> we played <laughs> we played Dark Depths versus Painter so it was uh, uh, turn one, turn two, uh, combo galore. <laughs> it was really nice playtesting and a very interesting matchup. And uh, I will let Christopher talk a little bit more about that when he talks about his playing experience this week. Uh, but I've been rebuilding a little bit of standstill. Uh, I've been hesitant to to sort of see how the meta shakes out and also if like the Ursa Saga standstill deck, how it performs. And uh, I've been following Christopher's track and uh, and trying out the Timeless Dragon in this shell. So I've been I've been putting together a list and testing it a little bit uh, as well against goblins. It, it's pretty rough <laughs> matchup for standstill actually against vials and caverns and uh, endless threats. But the uh, deck is looking good and uh, I, I will keep on testing it and and hopefully get to play a little bit more standstill in the future. Aside from that, I've been uh, reorganizing my collection that's a part of, of Paper uh, Legacy and Paper Magic as well. L- looking to buy some new cards, maybe a moat to play in the standstill deck. Uh, if you play Timeless Dragon and Shark Typhoons, I think a moat will be very good, especially in the control mirrors and against rough decks such as Goblins or Death and Taxes or uh, Eight Walla. So that's what I'm looking to pick up. That's really sweet. What what old school cards did you sell off to uh, finance this uh, uh, moat? I've actually been selling all of my Wheel of Fortunes. <laughs> I had three, and uh, I'm selling off cards that I don't play anymore. Cyclopean Tomb. Uh, I had a lot of Soul Rings, uh, which I had been playing in my more casual decks, and to start turn one, Soul Ring is not really a casual start with any deck, even though you ramp into a War Mammoth or something like that. It's uh, it's still busted in that uh, sort of uh, format, so I, I think that uh, those decks actually will be more fun without Soul Rings and Mana Vaults and Demonic Tutors and all of that crazy stuff. Yeah, I saw I saw those uh, sweet strip mines that you picked up, and I was really close on riding. But then I was like, I'm gonna do some research first because it it would be for an a commander deck. Uh, I did some research, I looked at some prices, and then I realized my play group is gonna hate me if I yeah. do this. <laughs> so like, uh, it's it's probably a, a risky move, anyways. Uh, but yeah, that that goblins thing with the standstill, it's a big relate. Um, 
I have I have one story where I played that matchup, and this was during when I played blue blue red uh, counter burn standstill, and my opponent on turn four played cavern on goblin and played a ringleader, cracking my standstill and got more cards out of the deal than I did, and it felt like shit. <laughs> yeah. One one card that seems really nice from uh, Modern Horizons 2 for that matchup is the Dressdown, which I have been running two in the main deck. So in response to the Moxes of a Cavern, uh, which they they don't even pass the priority because they're sure that it's going to resolve. But wait, 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 wait. Dressdown, you have a 4-4. Let's go. <laughs> I think Dressdown is on top of my list of Modern Horizons 2 cards no one really thought of that really delivered in a really fun way. I think that card improves legacy. I mean, I've also actually been organizing my binders uh, and reorganizing stuff, uh, not selling too much, just buying buying cards uh, currently. But in my binder sits an English mirror universe that a friend of mine owns, uh, and I'm just sort of keeping it for him. So I think right about now is probably a good time to give him a call and advise him to sort of just you should move this mirror universe out of my binder and transfer that into some increasing life quality you're like this binder spa will start beginning to have an a fee for expensive cards just <laughs> sleeping over another friend of mine has two arabian Nights city of brass sitting in that same binder so yeah i should start <laughs> collecting rent i guess so what about you christopher how was your week? Did you do something fun like organizing cards? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm saving that shore, man. <laughs> it's I, at the beginning of summer. I was like, I'm gonna fix my collection, and now it's like, uh, school starts in, oh, still three weeks. Suck on that, guys. You're back at work probably. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I've been procrastinating for two months already, and it's terrible. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I promise. I'm gonna fix my collection. Uh, I've just, you know, been taking some long, uh, you know, listening to pods, taking long walks and uh, uh, just thinking about like uh, both school and magic had, had you know, some some uh, nice me time. And this week I sleeved up the trusty old painter, uh, which is a deck that I have played a ton uh, in the past. I, I picked it up at around 2012, 2013. And the deck has changed so much over the years, but it still, you know, feels the same. Um, but it it has had some struggles from time to time. Uh, but I think it's in a really good spot right now. When I picked up the deck at first, it featured, you know, Sensei's Divining Top. And one of the biggest appeals to the deck uh, for some people, like uh, if you watch the Star City Circuit, you know, people just jamming Blood Moon during the shardless meta and people just packing their cards up because it, it was game if they didn't have the force. Mainly, you know, Sensei's Divining Top did a lot of pulling in that deck. In in a non-blue deck, being able to fix your draws like, like Top did in this deck was super, super strong. So when the Top got banned uh, due to the sins of another deck or some other cards, maybe Counterbalance or, you know, Terminus, I'm not going to point any fingers, but it was definitely miracles. But like I mentioned, it, it leaned into, you know, Blood Moon and Imperial Recru Recruiter a lot more than it does now. Cards that had just really good snowball power uh, with Painter Servants, such as Goblin Welder and 
Yaya Ballard, which never sees play anymore, played really crucial uh, roles in that meta. Uh, if you got your Yaya Ballard down and had a painter, it was just really hard for the opponent to do anything. The deck now uh, features, you know, some some cards from Modern Horizons. I think both one and two. You know, you have Goblin Engineer. Now we see Ursa Saga, which is the new toy from Modern Horizons 2, which is actually extremely powerful in this deck. But also, you know, Carnegrate Creator. Uh, yeah, what would an artifact do without this card? The inclusion of, of Ursa Saga in the deck is probably the reason why it shies away from Blood Moon, because having Ursa Saga putting out those constructs or tutoring for a, a combo piece is stronger than having <laughs> all non-basics non being being mountains and uh, yeah blood moon also kills your sagas so it's a uh, it's a pretty bad bad synergy but yeah i like i said i tried the deck out and it's extremely fun and it's very powerful uh, the deck that i played had four welders four engineers four painters two imperial recruiters five red elemental blast effects four bolts three grindstones one soul guide lantern one spirit guide one crater maker one Sundering Titan, which is a very fun engineer target. During this Wednesday, I got to do the all of your lands <laughs> in one of the games, uh, which against the opponent, which was very sweet. It was a concession after that. One Bola Citadel, which is uh, a very interesting card from I think World of Spark or something like that. I I'd, I'd guess World of Spark, but it's uh, the black most famous for vintage playing Tinker decks where you just get to play the card on top of your library and paying its mana cost in life. And, you know, it's an artifact, so you can't really cast this card in this deck because this is a mono-red deck with free lotus petals, which, I mean, technically you could get there, but you're cheating it into play. One ensnaring bridge, like I mentioned, free lotus petal, one lead, two Karn, and one Chandra. And then, you know, the lands. If you've seen a painter deck, it's some soul lands, eight mountains, Free Furnace and Four Saga. This configuration, you know, like I mentioned, it has flex slots. If you've seen a painter player since Engineer came, you've probably seen every player have a bit of a different flavor to what they want to put in their graveyard with Engineer. Uh, you know, Sundering Titan has had a lot of spice, uh, like flair in the deck, uh, but everything from, you know, Mirror Battlesphere to uh, some other, you know, really combustible Gearhulk. It's, you name it. It's it's just a very fun, uh, fun card uh, to put in the deck, the Citadel. Uh, so yeah, the, the Ursa Saga is what impressed me the most. Uh, it's extremely brutal. Like I said, like I played uh, against Robin a bit and against uh, a bug midrange opponent. And I guess, you know, against the bug opponent, Blood Moon would have been banger because I saw a lot of duels, but it didn't matter because Ursa Saga got their game one. Uh, just two two copies of Ursa Saga killed the opponent uh, with me holding red rebs up and stuff like that. You know, threatening the combo and just killing them with constructs is very powerful. Then, like I mentioned, I blew up all of his lands in game two with the Sundering Titan, and which led to a concession. It's not much you can do about that. Then I think we played six games, Robin. Is that right? I stopped counting actually <laughs> <laughs> after my like 
third loss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we played we played a lot of games because in the in the span that it took for me to play because you 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 played against the the, the bug opponent too, but you played a, a control deck also. I, I actually played a few very fast deaths versus uh, versus control uh, matches. They were finished quite quite uh, fast. So so th- then I switched deck in the meantime. Yeah, because when I when I joined the Discord call, uh, you were in this uh, control mirror, and I was sitting there like, oh god, what game is this? This is gonna take take forever. But then I was my mindset was that you're on a control deck, so I kept a hand that could deal with control kind of and then you're on depth which which was kind of funny but yeah it was it was super close games i think uh, i'm not really sure who's favored i think i think my draws lined up better but i don't think the matchup is favorable in any of the directions because both are just too fast and can do too much with too little and yeah it, it was it was really fun that that was pretty much my my uh, week of uh, of legacy just sleeving up painter servant and milling my opponents you know if you have an endurance good for you i'm going to mill you next turn as well and the turn after that so it's just it's really sweet i'm just sitting here thinking that rainbow depths versus mono red painter i don't know why but it gives me this image of uh, you know televised wrestling <laughs> 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 I mean, these two decks like they're dressed up in spandex they have some really extreme cheesy entry songs uh, extraordinarily boastful and makes commentary uh, interesting because it's all like oh yeah wow look <laughs> at that oh my god to the face no oh no uh, like that's, that's that's what I feel watching that game would have felt like yeah, that's what that's what the games uh, was like, actually. You know, you know when uh, when you mill someone with painter, you flip their whole deck over, and it kind of looks like a German suplex. <laughs> <laughs> You're just taking the whole deck and just turning it on the others, <laughs> other way around. Like, yeah, it's it's out of here. But that that matchup is actually really interesting because both these decks are sort of linear, but. Uh, but uh, when they face up against each other, they have a lot of interaction with each other. It was really cool. I I, I lost as many time being milled as I lost to a bridge that I couldn't handle, for instance. And and then there's the like uh, pyroblast on the depths when you try to activate it. There are a lot of uh, interesting plays in that that matchup. Yeah, I think if the if the painter player gets a bit time to set up, if you get past turn turn two or three. I think you're pretty favored, uh, especially in a deck in in this kind of configuration where you have eight welder effects. Uh, you know, even if you find your decay for the bridge, it's not gone. You have to have you know some grave graveyard hate assembled and stuff like that. So it's it's definitely tricky. But yeah, then you drew zero decays in all of our games, uh, which definitely mattered. Yeah, but it it, it was also interesting like going through the the sort of um, how how to board in, in this uh, in this uh, matchup because in the end i think i was uh, i was uh, boarding in the ley lines for instance because uh, like your your most frequent avenue to either winning or to locking me out is is where the 
via the gra- graveyard and uh, engineers. So that that was a, like a late addition to 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 board in the graveyard hate. And I think in the end I boarded in something like eight cards or something like that. It was quite quite a big boarding. So, uh, Victor, did you get to play any cardboard? Nope. I spent uh, the last days of my summer building a staircase. Uh, uh, And while doing so, uh, trying to keep up with the latest spoilers and a shaky 4G connection in the middle of the woods, (laughs) uh, there was this Ren N7 sort of flashing by. I don't even know if that's for real. But it got me thinking. Uh, As an analog player in a digital world... I find myself having reasons to ponder what the current spoiler cycle setup means to me. And I know that you guys are thinking of the same things. Robin, what is your take on this? Yeah, I I think it's quite interesting during the spoiler seasons. Uh, I I mean, it's like this, uh, you uh, are waiting to see what kind of cards are being spoiled and in the old times, most of the cards just passed by, right? But lately, the cards have been so powerful, so every spoiler can be really nerve-wracking to see. Maybe your first glimpse at the card, it looks very strong, and then you read it again, and oh, maybe this is unplayable. <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's quite interesting during spoiler seasons these days. I think spoiler season is gone. Uh, at least it feels like every time I... Not every time I log into Twitter, but... A lot of times when I log into Twitter, there's talk about the new card or uh, some sort of speculations. It feels like, you know, uh, back back in the day, not too long ago, there was like, here's a set spoiler season. And, uh, you know, they released a certain cards with some flavor to it in an article. And you wrote to your friends like, oh, this is this looks really cool in, you know, this legacy deck or in, in this commander shell. But I feel that's kind of gone because it everything kind of feels like it's uh, you know a lot of digital spoilers a lot of uh, what's the word saturation it's been a lot to keep up with which kind of takes away the whole you know mysticism and you know especially now when we're going to Innistrad I really you know want to have like a spooky feeling you know go into the the graveyard and uh, get the feel for the set uh, yeah I really hope that they just pull back a bit on the frequency uh, what about you, Victor? What's your, what's your take? Yeah, I was, you know, thinking the same lines, obviously, and and of course, this is not a new discussion among legacy players. Uh, if you are playing in paper, because I mean, compared to earlier, uh, you would get a couple of standard set releases every year, and once in a while for commander decks, uh, and that was the things you were looking at. I mean, these days, standard players still have their sets coming out at sort of basically the same pace. If you're a standard player in the Gathering, or a limited player, uh, more or less, not much has happened. But since there are so many supplementary sets, so many special releases of cards, as a legacy player, you become sort of caught in this endless spoiler hamster wheel. But sort of I've decided to sort of try to think that this doesn't bother me too much, but rather consider if there are actual gameplay problems with this. And I was thinking, for example, is the 
pace of the growth of the card pool prohibitive as regards to brewing for people who play exclusively in paper? I mean, if you want to brew with the new cards, can you physically get a hold of the, all the cards that you want to brew with? Or is that task becoming insurmountable with this pace of growth of the available cards? I mean, can you physically find time to test them? And I would say that the answer is probably leaning more towards no these days compared to earlier. And that means that as a paper player, I will need to rely on digital players to try out these cards for me because there is simply not logistics i mean logistical reasons prohibit me from doing this testing myself and that takes away part of the mystery of the game for me which i think is i mean it's something that we have to sort of it's a reality i don't think that sort of being super mopey about it's going to change anything but i will take this one opportunity to boomer style say that when i was young (laughs) etc etc yeah, I think uh, one sort of way to handle that that I am doing for myself is that when there's a new archetype that is uh, getting new cards and is there will be a lot of like uh, brewing around that uh, card or around that archetype and it will evolve. It's not so meaningful to do that on your own while sort of the online grind is is going on and it's doing it much faster and like there's a a thousand brains working on the same project. So in those instances, I rather look for a deck that will sort of fight that deck or maybe fight the deck that will fight that deck to be like the stone, uh, paper, scissor analogy to, to find another deck to work on that is maybe not in the focus at that specific time. So, for instance, during this uh, Modern Horizons 2 spoiler season or like brewing after the set was released, I've been mostly working on lands and standstill and sort of a little bit more fringe decks to see what they can do. Because around those archetypes, sort of the knowledge production is not just as quick as it is when it comes to, for instance, Delver and uh, the Bant control deck that will fight the Delver deck. So then I'm more inclined to look at other decks that maybe can fight both of those two decks on another axis. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, think that you're you're on something. And also, I think that the like digital versus paper pace that we're seeing now, it's definitely a result of uh, COVID and, and lockdown. Because when you when you go to a store, uh, someone might have the card. You might borrow it from a friend, and you might try out your fringe decks quite quite a bit earlier than you do now. Like even if you proxy the cards up, you might not get the same feel or get the same amount of reps if you're playing on a discordly like once or twice a week. Uh, but I think when returning to more physical play, because now I use uh, you know card market a, a bit when I order cards. And if if a new set has been released and I'm interested in buying uh, some cards from it, it can take, you know, like everything from 7 to 20 plus days uh, for the cards to get here. You know, you can you can proxy things up, but just uh, writing to someone in a group chat to your, at your LGS, you know, like, hey, has anyone got any copies of this card and just 
bring your deck with those open slots that you're gonna borrow and just try it out quicker i think it, it tickles the brewers uh, you know not a, not like a, it it itches not itches it scratches that itch that the brewer has that you can try some things quicker you know it feels like you get a bit more excitement out of it so i think it is prohibitive now but i think that's a lot because the state of the world and i think returning back when you can trade with friends or borrow cards i think it's going to be a bit easier to try things out and at lgs's you know a lot of people try out a lot of weirder stuff also so i think that the the season will open up again one thing that i will try to make happen in the coming months is that i will try to again go to a pre-release because i think at a pre-release you will get like one or two of these cards that you are interested in and just the feeling of sort of cracking them in a pack putting them in a sleeve, play them for a couple of hours and then go home and sort of sitting it in your hands and sort of thinking, what can I do with this? Because this interaction today was cool. Can I amp up that reaction or that interaction to a legacy level? And how would that go about? I think that's something I miss. I haven't done a pre-release since War of the Spark. And I mean, coming home from War of the Spark pre-release was interesting, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, my, my last uh, pre-release, I think, was um, the middle set in Kaladesh, where Fatal Push got printed. I can't remember. The Revolt or something like that. I, I played a two-headed giant tournament <laughs> with... Uh, renowned Grixis player in our community and we opened one fatal push between all of our boosters and then we like just got wrecked because like yeah we don't know this uh, limited format and we played against two people who just murdered us and we were like do you want to play legacy in between the rounds that's great (laughs) who gets to play with a fatal push (laughs) (laughs) I used to be a really good uh, Giants player actually I've beat really well-decorated Swedish pros in Two of the Giant at pre-releases. Also, those are my biggest magic scalps, so uh, that says a bit about my career as a player. What what kind of uh, like qualities uh, is most important in a two-headed giant game? Uh, most important uh, is to, if those rules still are the rules that they were last time I played, but I think they are, uh, you have a free mulligan, so use that free mulligan. I remember at, at the last time I played, me and my friend, we uh, the first round we sat down, I think this was like uh, Magic 2014. We had a really good... Uh, really good decks for for to the giants in our in our pool, uh, and we sat there against opponents, and the, our opponents were like sort of these two guys that were quite confident, and they were really nice, but they were like, yeah, no, this is good, this is good, and we we're like looking at each other, we we're like, no, no, we're gonna mulligan, and they're like, wow, okay, and we we're like just like, of course you mulligan, let's fucking mulligan, let's go, I want new <laughs> cards, and then we just crushed them, and then we told them like, guys, you have a free mulligan, like. If your hand isn't fucking fantastic, just throw it away because you get a free shot. And they're like, you know, that's good recommendations. And then we met them in the finals of this tournament and lost because they had learned how to play to the giant. Instant karma noodles. No, I was happy for them. Uh, And they were super happy. They were like, that really helped. Like, we've been mulliganing all day. I'm like, I can tell you're here. (laughs) The most time when you hear me say that, I'm probably not too happy about it. But these circumstances are quite different.
So it's been five years since Magic's best plane was insulted by perhaps the worst plot in Magic lore ever. I'm of course talking about Shadows over Innistrad, uh, where for reasons that will never be explainable to anyone, you had to bring the Eldrassis to Innistrad to just make a complete, complete mess out of everything. Like, there were so many interesting subplots happening in this job when we got back there, and then everything is just... Eldritch Moon comes along and just whacks everything out. And then we're going to trap Emrakul in a moon. The moon, which is also like a car that's a moon. <laughs> it, it pains me to this day. Uh, and now we have coming up, of course, we're in the spoiler season for Innistrad Midnight Hunt. And then... I mean, later on in the fall, we're going to have Innistrad Crimson Wow. Do you have any hopes or wishes from Innistrad uh, Midnight Hunt and then later on Crimson Wow? Can we recoup uh, the heavy losses of five years ago? Well, I am not so so well-versed when it comes to lore. Uh, so I will speak mostly about what kind of cards I would like to see. But I think it would be cool if there were cards printed for those archetypes that sort of got left out in MH2 so that sort of the playing field could be leveled out a little bit before bans happen. Because like for a while now there's been so many strong cards printed and they most of them have been banned and uh, like looking back it's a little bit of a pity that uh, some of those cards are not still among us because it would be interesting to see how they match against each other. Uh, so either I hope there, there will be some uh, like nice uh, cards for like tier 2, tier 3 decks uh, or not so many playable legacy cards at all so that we can get a break sort of from from uh, uh, format upheaval and, uh, and just try to sort out how this uh, meta is at as it is. That's my wishes. Yeah, you know, I I really uh, like the the first Innistrad, not only, you know, because we got such bangers, you know, everything from Snapcaster Mage to, uh, you know, some Insect, uh, might have heard of it. Unplayable uh, but also, by now. Yeah, Unplayable, Unplayable one drop. Uh, but, you know, Grizzlebrand and... Uh, Thalia, you know, Victor, who is, uh, you know, the Thalia and Grizzlebrand uh, daddy, uh, he's super, you know, like, I, I can really see why the the last set lore-wise really got to, got to you, because you've played these two legendary creatures in two different decks for such a long time, and have there must have been some sort of expectation, you know, like, we're going to go back, we're going to have some sort of really cool demon or something demon adjacent that's going to be cool enough. Uh, we might have, you know, a playable Falia <laughs> or something. The new Falia, I'm not going to uh, bash on it because I've, I've lost it. But, you know, the, the flavor was so good. You know, everything from small, small uh, vampires that uh, could get plus counters, uh, like plus one, plus one counters. What was it? Storm, Stormcroak Noble? It was some really cool vampire. Uh, one of my favorite cards that I've casted a lot, Mistolo Griffin, <laughs> because you cast it a lot when you go off. But it's it's 
this set had just such mysticism with it and it really told a story you know every basic really showed you a part of the the fantastic world and then they kind of like dropped the ball real hard uh, on the last one you know it was like one of those scenarios where they really understood that they did something incredibly well the first time around because when they came back to Innistrad it was like they were trying to redo the set in a different kind of light I remember that uh, Delver homage creature which is a giant expensive creature which also is a human that I think flips but it's just like a massive Delver it doesn't it's not as impactful as the first Delver. It doesn't tell the same story. It just tells like wizards want to do Delver again, but they can't because they have to find what the new Delver is. So yeah, Victor, what are you what are you thinking? So if the first cycle of Innistrad, which is Innistrad, Dark Ascension, and Avacyn Restored, was high quality, pristine HP Lovecraft, then to some extent, Shadows of Innistrad, but definitely Eldritch Moon, feels like when you are in seventh grade and you've read one H.P. Lovecraft short novel and you want to recreate that with your friends in your drama group. I mean, Innistrad, the first the first three sets they gave us, I mean, you mentioned some cards. We also got Liliana of the Veil, Faithless Looting. I mean, these are iconic cards. Terminus. There are so many cards uh, from this first set that really help shape legacy in what it is today, I think in a very good way. Because sometimes people say, oh, before Delver you could play these four or five mana value spells and those were the good old days. I mean, I think the introduction of Delver of Secrets really shaped legacy into something that really hits that sweet spot that we talked a couple of episodes ago about where you can be in between being very competitive and also being very creative. Uh, and I think the Innistrad sets really help bring that about. And of course, I'm not going to sort of put it on the, these coming to Innistrad sets to do the same thing, because what, what the first Innistrad cycle did was, I think, a one-of-a-kind event, so to speak. But what I do hope is that we move away from... Because also, I mean, the, 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 the second Innistrad cycle had so many weird mechanics. Like, do you remember you could flip these cards and put two cards together into one big card and that was now sort of your melded creature? Like, it had so many extremely awkward and sort of, again, like, it feels like someone in seventh grade was like, oh, it would be cool if we can put two cards together and make this really big card and then these big cards sort of just really sucked. And then they kind of did that in Unstable, which was super funny. Like, uh, you know, when they you put two parts of an animal together, it's it's the cat head and the shark body or whatever. And that's like, what was it? Brisella or Gisella, the two angels that just became this massive thing. And I'm like, <laughs> two years later or whatever, it was like in Unstable. I was like, oh man, they worked on this set too. I mean, card-wise, of course, uh, I agree with Robin. It would be fun if, you know, tier 3, tier 4 decks could have could have one or two cards that can push them into another level. But then again, that's the cycle always. I mean, currently, of course, one of my decks, the Black Red Reanimator, isn't having a lot of success uh, on the legacy stage. But these things are cyclical. I mean, a couple of years ago, the deck was tearing everything up. And then it had a second coming when we sort of realized that, ooh, this Children of Corlys build is probably just better. Let's go that way. So I think those things sort of, they happen. 
cyclically by themselves. But if I could wish one thing, it's of course, I want another Thalia. I think we're going to get one. The last one that we got, I liked the design of that card. I think that was good card design. Now, currently, it's not good enough for Legacy because it costs three, and that's a huge problem for a creature in this deck. But if we get a good two-mana Thalia, that of course would be a boon for me. I wouldn't be sad to see that happen. Yeah, I think I think the Thalia got downgraded, but for me the Liliana really got an upgrade. Last Hope in Eldritch Moon is just such a sweet card. I've played with it a lot because I I like to beat down on D&D players, and that card just does it best. But it also has fallen off the power level uh, due to you know blue red Delver. It doesn't kill anything uh, in that deck almost now. Maybe Ragavan, but, you know. And in D&T, they can just Skyclave it, and it doesn't skill, kill Skyclave. It's a, it's a pride rough, but there are some really cool bangers in in the in the latest Innistrad uh, when it comes to just card uh, power. And I think that they got the power level of the second Innistrad better than the first for uh, Eternal Play. You know, like the first one, uh, we mentioned some cards, but one of the real big ones for combo decks, especially Ant, uh, was uh, Past in Flames, where they usually, they, they played Ill-Gotten Gains and Adnasium before that. Um, and getting Past in Flames just transformed that deck, uh, really made it, uh, for me, tier 1, tier 1.5. Uh, but also, you know, such sweethearts like Cavern of Souls got printed in, in the first uh, Innistrad. And I would really like, you know, uh, give give the uh, the cool tribes more air and maybe cut back a bit on the changelings. You know, let let vampires be vampires. You know, we saw the really, <laughs> the really fun champion of the parish, uh, spoiler card, which is just such a fun take on the parish uh, from uh, the human all-star from the... Uh, is it? Is it also? It's in Innistrad, yeah. Of course it's Innistrad. Of course. <laughs> Else it would not make sense. And now when I said, said it, I was like, oh man, of course. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping a bit that they want to go back to that humans against the plane kind of feeling humans against the night uh, and the, all the creatures that dwell this is a super sort of high fantasy story and it is very unclear if the good guys are actually gonna make it uh, and i really like that about uh, the first cycle of innistrad of course in the second cycle of innistrad you have the avengers coming in like, here's Jace, and here's Garruk, and here's, you know, everyone. Let's just, we can, and here's the Eldrazi, but no matter. Now we're forming the alliance of blah. It just felt like you knew exactly what was going to happen. So if they can find, again, sort of let werewolves, werewolves, let vampires be vampires. If they can find that gothic sort of, we don't know, this is scary, then I think they can you know, run this home. And I also, I mean, as I understand it, the concept for Innistrad Midnight Hunt is that there is this sort of eternal night going on. So things seem to have sort of gotten worse somehow since we last visited. So, you know. Yeah, it's definitely gonna... I'm looking forward for it. Uh, just uh, not necessarily, you know, to get new cards because we've we've gotten a lot of cards uh, recently. I, I, ha I just got my Aceleracks home and I haven't even sleeved them up. I'm gonna spoiler alert maybe try them tomorrow but 
uh, yeah, I'm definitely excited to see, you know, what kind of things they do with all of the the creatures and uh, how long can this night be. Concepts once all over in the Stroud hunt has been spoiled. Now, though, it is high time for us to gather the basic land connoisseur panel again on a deck I, you know, believe Christopher will have a few things to say about the aforementioned mono red painter. So, Christopher, why don't you go first? So, yeah, the like I mentioned earlier, uh, I've played this, this uh, deck quite a bit, and for the most time, I've actually preferred it to be mono red. Uh, there are some people who really enjoy the the white splash, and I think in some meta games that was probably the the way to go. Uh, like during the Omnitel era with Dig for Time, uh, having cannonists etc. was really good. But I've played this deck for a really long time, and the mountain that I've played since day one with this deck is a birthday gift that I got from a friend. Um, I had lived in Stockholm for around one one year maybe and I was building this deck and I had a birthday party and some friends came over and one of them handed me uh, a, a deck box and I felt that it, it had you know some cards in it and I opened it up and it had a you know like a lot of invasion foil mountains it's the one that's drawn by uh, Jeff it's really red uh, it looks like the mountain has been Blood Moon. Like, Blood Moon is in play when you're looking at this. And he just gave me, like, 20 of them. I have them all all over the apartment, you know, like, open a drawer. Like, oh, here's one of the mountains. You know, it's, it's one of the most frequent things you find in my house. But I've played them in this deck for such a long time. And uh, they are super nostalgic to me. So I, I do play that exact one but i have some other options one is from odyssey and it's by anthony s waters the odyssey one it looks like you know it's some pretty sharp mountains and it's overall quite a dark picture the reason why i like this one is the uh, light that hits the mountain it doesn't look like natural sunlight it looks like it's reflected from the moon so it's like a clear silent night and the moonlight is just embracing the mountain and this deck has played quite a bit of moons yeah it, it it's just very moody the second one is one of my favorite ones and <laughs> might be from the most featured set that we've had on the basic land connoisseur and it's from portal second kingdom because portal lands rock and yeah here we have a rock it's uh, by rob alexander who's a uh, quite famous artist for magic this mountain is just so perfect everything looks like it was drawn in the in the same color palette this is a painter deck so when you put the painter on a color everything becomes their color and this specific mountain looks like the painter is on red and it's just like this incredible view that bestows like a 
before you. It's very pretty. So what do you guys think? I think the the Portal Second Kingdom one is really beautiful. I like that a lot. No, I agree. This is Rob Alexander masterpiece right here. It's just absolutely gorgeous. There is this mist in the foreground, a red pinkish mist that has the same color of the distant sky and i think that interplay with putting so much pink in this mountain card and pulling it off in such a fantastic way it's uh no this is um yeah wow it has some some ursa saga vibes to it with the colors because the mountains in ursa saga kind of reminds me of that uh, but this is even more pink and uh, it's it's brighter and uh, yeah, it's it's definitely one of my top mountains of all time. I also think that the the sort of quiet and peaceful theme of it fits the the, the painter deck playstyle <laughs> quite a lot. I I think I I really like the the first one that you were talking about, which looks like really blood moony. But that that uh, mountain is so it happens so much in that picture. It's uh, it feels like it belongs more in a sort of aggressive deck. That's my that's the feeling that I get from it. Yeah, it looks quite burny. So, what about you, Robin? What are you for? Uh, what do you have for us for this uh, week's panel? Yeah, when it when it comes to decks that don't play fetch lands necessarily, uh, I like to take the opportunity to play uh, unorthodox basic lands that don't have like the the ordinary. Uh, land kind of look because w- when you play fetch lands you usually play a couple of duels and then I like my basics to sort of match the duels in the art style but when you play only basics uh, I think you can sort of uh, do something do something different and so I picked out the mountain from Anglude which uh, has a very special uh, brown sort of frame and very orangey sort of sky behind a mountain with uh, with snow and ice on it and uh, I, I really I have always liked this mountain but I have never uh, found deck <laughs> to, to play it in and uh, if, if I should play it in it should be a, a deck without fetches sort sort of like painter for example this is a beautiful beautiful mountain as well Tom Vanerstrand really knows how to play with watercolors I really enjoy also that the frame is different like it's I think these lands are exclusive to this frame and it kind of looks like a canvas you know uh, when the artist is gonna go up and draw on a on an empty canvas and that it has some sort of special frame which also is just like some extra painter this you're you're the servant you're just walking around handing the painter the uh, you know all of the painting equipment needed and uh, this is the result so victor what have you chosen for basic land well for me i thought like what what is painter what is that painter i mean it's uh, it's a scarecrow so first i went out on a mission to try and find the most scarecrowy mountain in magic that i could so i was looking for like you know a field or a graveyard or, or something and, and of course painter originally was from shadow more so i looked at those basics but they don't really fit that bill and i couldn't find any mountain to go with that lore theme so i had to switch gears and then thinking so what does painter do coats all cards in one color so i was gonna go for let's let's say it's painted on red just to make things easier here 
because the mountain I've chosen, it's uh, from Jumpstart, car number 68, by, of course, Adam Paquette. <laughs> I seem to always choose Lance. <laughs> it's a good meme. It is, a good, because I I don't go looking for his Lance. It's just like when I find Lance that I like, they're always by Adam Paquette. Because this is in this picture, you have a mountain range that seems to be made up completely by lightning. Like it's shapes of mountain mountains, but there are lightnings making these shape, shapes. Uh, so they are artificial fake mountains. And of course, that's what Painter's Servant does. It sort of fakely makes all of the cards in, in, this, uh, in these decks red. But it's just um, uh, sort of a lightning fix. It's, uh, it's not real. It's an artificial color. And, and th in this picture, you have artificial mountains. So I thought that would fit the bill. Yeah, a lot of times your opponent has a lot of artificial mountains too. They're tropicals, they're dark depths, anything really. They're fetches. Everything's an artificial mountain. I, I would play this basic land in burn because it's bolts all over the place. <laughs> play my land, you take nine. <laughs> That's a really cool mountain. And that is all we have for this week. We really hope that you have enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording. We would also like to, again, send out our heartfelt thanks to the people reaching out to us with feedback and support through social media or Discord forums that we are in. It really means a lot to us. Uh, thank you so much. It, it really makes this, uh, this work worth doing. And if you too want to find a way to support this podcast, consider recommending us to a friend, spreading the word. Uh, and if someone wants to reach out to us with uh, you know, such feedback and support, where can they find us, Robin? Uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook. That's where I use, uh, where I do mo most of my magic affairs. And you can find me on MonolithMTG on Twitter. And I'm also on Twitter under Disco Drogo. And that is the end of the twelfth episode of Stockholm Legacy Report. Thank you, Robin Svensson and Christopher Wikström. My name is Victor Bernhards. Our amazing music is written by Frönes. Check them out on Spotify. Until next time, all hail Grizzlebrand. <laughs>